I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Greed, deception, abuse of power, that's no plan. They, they just gatekeep knowledge, you know? They're, they're to total masters of deception. They manipulate everything. You know, these, these pricks at the hell that lie to us. It's... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. They're, they're setting it up for the Great Deception. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all revolves around the Great Deception. Yeah, right? it, bingo. And L.A. and I talked about that. I said, L.A., is this the Great Deception? And he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. For well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. The world needs a wake-up call. We're going to phone it in. And welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. I want to start off tonight by giving a few shout outs. Um, and if I don't shout you out, it doesn't mean I don't respect what you're doing. But there's a few people right now, guys, that, uh, you know, and I've cut back how many podcasts I listen to because I feel like it's starting to get a little watered down out there and uh, or it's just talking about things that, you know, I just don't have any interest in. Uh, so some of these podcasters are just, you know, they're hitting on things that are relevant, whether it's historically, whether it's present current politics, whether it's a combination of both. Um, and you should really go check out what they're doing, uh, especially, you know, so I'll start with Ron and, and Buckley over at the Wicked Planet podcast. Uh, they got a series uh, from Babylon and Beyond that, you know, they've been doing for a good month plus now, uh, and they've just hit the tip of the iceberg. So go check that out. It's a great series. Uh, my man, Andrew uh, for America over at the Punk Rock and Politics podcast uh, is doing some great work on how do we get where we are now, uh, comparing some of the, uh, taking some of the old stuff. Uh, he's been hitting on Ukraine a lot lately in the history there, uh, along with uh, Sam Winchester, guys. If you, if you haven't listened to According to Sam, man, this guy's got just over 100 episodes and uh, I've been binging his his podcast for the last couple of weeks, and it's just great work. This guy has has thorough research, you know, has videos to back it up, clips to back it up. So go check out According to Sam. I, I highly recommend it. Um, Ryan is uh, is doing some great work over at the Dangerous World. He's changing things up a little bit and starting to do some some visuals over on YouTube. So I, I highly recommend going check those out. Those are some really cool episodes um, as well. Uh, and that's just to name a few. 
Um, my buddy Moral Bob, guys, if you're not if you're not checking out the Hidden in Plain Sight podcast, uh, his his Flat Earth School or his appearances on other shows, it's it's some great material. So go check them out. Uh, my, my buddy NY Patriot and and uh, Lux over at Occult Rejects, but the NY Patriot show too, guys. Go check those out. Those guys have been killing it lately with with some dives into some different stuff and, and opening up some minds as to uh, what we're seeing isn't it actually what it appears to be. And I, I think, man, part of this time that we're in right now is arming yourself with knowledge. And, and there's no one that's going to do it for you. And you have to do it for yourself. You have to equip yourself. It is a, it is a self-defense weapon now. You know, I, I joke around and say that, you know, a lot of my my podcaster buddies and I are spellbreakers, but, you know, I'm starting to feel that a little bit because, you know, we're starting to get them to attack us on stuff that we're hitting on left and right that they just blew off before and called us crazy for. Now they have to put out mainstream pieces on it. Okay. And there was a hip, hit piece in Bloomberg uh, last year uh, going after Tartaria and the whole idea of that. And we'll get into a little bit of that tonight. And then there was a hit piece back in January that I just saw on the old world buildings and how, you know, they were, you know, are older than we say and how the whole history behind them is, is bullshit. And they kind of shot that down and, and uh, think that, you know, we're just crazy conspiracy theorists who don't have any evidence whatsoever. And the whole mud flood idea, whole old world idea is just crazy talk. Um, but she had no evidence to back up her point other than just throwing around, you know, she, of course, she had to lump it in with, with a certain conspiracy group uh, that shall rename, rename, remain at nameless. I don't know why that was so hard to say, but they loved the number 17. Anyway, on to uh, tonight's show. So what I have for you tonight is there's a lot of talk going on out there about Tartaria. Okay, and Tartarians and this great ancient civilization that spanned the world and, you know, all sorts of crazy, you know, different varying views on what this really is. But what I'm going to take a look at is I want to show you, and, we're, and much like I do with a lot of this stuff, I'm working backwards, guys. I'm working from the end backwards. So what I'm going to start looking at first is what was the end of the Tartarian era? You know, uh, and what was the role of the Romanovs in that? Okay. And the role of Peter the Third, the emperor of Russia, brief emperor of Russia. Okay. So, but when we talk about Tartaria, right, a lot of you guys here, it's, it's, it's like this all encompassing term that it's just catchphrase for anything. And, you know, like, why is there so much mystery and, and why has it become the catchphrase for anything unexplainable? you know, from previous generations of humans. Well, there is a little bit of good reason for that. And that is because there is a declassified CIA document that was created in 1957. Okay, it was declassified by the CIA in 1998. And you can go to www.cia.gov backslash library and you can find this yourself. But what it says here, or let us take the mattery of history, which along with religion, 
language, and literature constitute the core of a people's cultural heritage. Here again, the communists have interfered in a shameless manner. For example, on 9 August 1944, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, sitting in Moscow, issued a directive ordering the party's Tartar Provincial Committee, quote-unquote, to proceed with scientific revision of the history of Tartaria to liquidate serious shortcomings and mistakes of nationalistic character committed by individual writers and historians in dealing with Tartar history. In other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten, let us be frank, was to be falsified in order to eliminate references to great Russian aggressions and to hide the facts of the real case. In every Muslim area within USSR, historians, on orders of the Communist Party, have rewritten history to distort the facts so the Russians appear always in a good light. Needless to say, histories which present the facts truthfully have been withdrawn and destroyed so that the present and future generations of Muslims are forever denied the chance of learning the true facts of their nation's past. Guys, that's from the CIA. Okay, so we know that this was covered up and that it existed and that it was covered up. They blame the KGB and and the, the Communist Party. But, you know, I, I believe the CIA had a role in it too. Um, and, and why do they want it erased? Well, we're going to, we're going to look at it a, a couple different ways, but before we get to that, I want you to think about Tartaria and, and, you know, who are Tartarians, right? And, and there's a bunch of options out there. And I don't think that one of them is the right answer. I think there could be multiple answers, but this is kind of the, the lump the, the groups that they're put in, okay? So you have group one, which they, they never existed. They're, it's just a f- created PSYOP, okay? Two, they're a bunch of Turkic Mongol states. Three, they're part of the Lost Tribes of Israel. Four, they're part of Fomenko's timeline. Five, they're a global advanced civilization. Or six, you have other, right? There's so many different... Now, if you ask me after what I've found so far, I would tend to go with two, that they are the Turkic Mongol states. Uh, Could they be part of the Lost Tribes of Israel? Possibly. I I don't know anything associated with that well enough. But I'm not going to say no, because obviously I don't know enough. Um. One of the things we're going to look at here is we're going to look at kind of the narrative of of what I found in a bunch of different sources when it comes to, you know, the end of the, the Tartar era, which is basically under the Romanovs. OK, the Romanovs ruled Russia from uh, 1613 to 1917. And in this time frame is when. Tartaria is erased from the maps because if you go back and I I have maps from the 1500s, the 1600s and the 1700s that all list part of Russia, if not most of Russia, as Great Tartary, Grand Tartary, Muscovite Tartary, Independent Tartary, Chinese Tartary, whatever. 
it, all there's all these different names on different maps. So it existed. Okay, it was on maps of history. So we know that this place existed. And based on the CIA document, we know now that it was intentionally erased. What we're trying to understand is why. And one of the roadblocks you continually run into is that there's not a lot of information because a lot of information has been destroyed. Now, when you know that's the case, that means someone has the information and does not want to release it because it will make them look bad. And in this case, it appears that it is the Russian government, a.k.a. the Romanov family. So we look at Tartary again, Tartaria. What is it? Well, another thing you have to consider, and, and my, my buddy Emmanuel Kingman always brings this to my attention, that Tartary, Tartaria, or the place of Tartar, or Tartarus, which was the place of Abyss. And that's what this could be. Tartaria could just be Tartarus on Earth. Now, what is Tartarus? Well, in Greek mythology, Tartarus is a deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked and as a prison for the Titans. Tartarus is a place where, according to Plato's Gorgias, uh, souls are judged after death and where wicked received divine punishment. Tartarus is also considered to be a primordial force or uh, deity alongside entities such as Earth night and time. So what I found interesting about that is some of the rumors about Tartaria or it was that there were giants, right? And you think about that and if if, if Tartaria was that was a prison for titans, that would make sense. Now, nothing that I found in any of the books that I've read have, have I've come across that yet. But I'm I'm I know people that have, and I know people that are talking about this. That basically the Mongols were uh, many of them were giants. Uh, it was a larger race, and we're going to get into it here uh, in a second. But I I want to give you kind of a baseline of uh, overall Russian history, it, very very simplified because it's not this easy. It's a very complicated history very long history, very, uh, you could say, manipulated history, right? When anytime you, you start getting into anything that goes back into like the 8th and 9th century, there is a very good chance of manipulation or inaccurate translation of the past. So keep that in mind also. But, so we start off, the initial empire of Russia was the Kiev Rus, which was a, basically a bunch of hordes uh, that, that worked together, and they were from the 9th to 13th century. If you want to learn more about the Kiev Rus, my man Ron from New England is all over them right now, so go check out the Wicked Planet podcast. So then, and, and they're into the, I should say, early 13th century. I'm saying like, you know, 1200-ish. Because in the early 13th century, the Mongol or the Tartar or Tatar uh, empire arises. And that lasts until the late 15th century, which is then uh, followed by the Muscovite uh, empire, which is basically the 16th and 17th centuries. Okay, 
um, the and and think about that when what happens in the Muscovite well that's kind of when the Romanovs start getting in then we get into the 18th 19th and 20th centuries that's the Romanovs wheelhouse right there okay and then you get into the 20th century and they call that the Soviet era and now we would probably be in the 21st century and this would be back to some sort of Russian uh, uh, based imperial um, if we want to look at it like that so let's go back to the beginning and guys I'm reading this great book right now it's called the Romanov Empire 1613 to 1917 by uh, Alan Wood. And honestly, it's it's a very deep book, tons of detail. And the guy actually calls it as he sees it, which is very entertaining and very, uh, you know, I trust what he's saying because he is very open and honest about what he is and isn't able to find. So in his book... Okay, he starts off and he says that basically the the Tatars or Tartars, Taters, the Mongols appear first in like 1223. And he says in the year 6731, peoples appeared and no one knows clearly who they are, whence they came, what language they speak, of what race they are, or of what faith. They call them Taters. Tatery, but God alone knows who they are and where they came from. So right away, you know, they kind of mysteriously appear out of nowhere. No one really knows who they are, what their origins are. Now, is this true? I don't know because they're, you know, they're 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 in the Mongolian area era area. You know, which is northern China, you know, southeastern Russia, or just eastern Russia. Um, and they kind of appear out of nowhere. So what he says also, though, okay, and this is where we run into issues. He goes, much of the accounts of the Mongols or the Tartars being heathen Asiatic hordes, uh, you know, that just attacked on Christians. He goes, that was deliberate propaganda. Um he said that that most of the the written historical records for the two and a half centuries of the Mongol rule, he said it's fairly short on solid information. It's quote unquote factually fuzzy, impressionistic, and unreliable as an accurate picture of events. Okay, so he's telling you right there that you know we we're getting a narrative, but what we know is very very little overall. Okay, on these on the Mongols and the Mongol Empire, whether that was intentionally destroyed after the fact, whether they didn't keep records or does somebody else have the records and we just aren't allowed to see them because it would impact the narrative of history. So we start looking at it and, you know, obviously everybody associates the Mongols, Mongolians, you know, the Mongol Empire with Genghis Khan. Okay. And he, he was the founder of the Golden Horde um, or, or founder of the Mongolian. Right. And then his his grandson, uh, Bati Khan, he was the one who eventually formed the Golden Horn, Horde. Uh, Bati 
you know, he was a skilled military commander. He was basically, as they said back then, these people were born on a horse. Okay. And this, and Bati won battles from China to Persia. He, you know, and, and he was one of these people that, you know, from the early, what was it? 1235-ish to around 1240 was just annihilating anything that got in his way, whether it was Russia, Poland, Hungary. So he's making it all the way out west. Um, and he basically was the kingmaker of the Mongolian Empire. Okay, and and he was essentially the most powerful man in the empire at the time. Um, and then, in you know, they crossed the Volga, which was unheard of, which is getting close on the doorstep of Moscow. Okay, and you look at the who the Volga, uh, the Bulgars were. Okay, they were the ruling party out there, and in the Mongol, they defeated him within a year. Okay, uh, and then he. By by 1239, he sacked Kiev, um, which was the heart of Russian Orthodoxy. So it was very, very important at the time. Okay, and he just kept raiding right through Crimea. Um, and then, you know, 1240, he did the same thing. He just kept sweeping through. And, you know, eventually you get to the 15th century and it's that's when Ivan the Great comes in. Okay, and he's the one who's basically saying, "Ah, okay, guys, we're we're gonna we're gonna hold it down." And what did he do? Okay, so the the I guess how would you say it? It's not the capital, but Kazan was a very very valuable town. Um, so in fifteen fifty two, Ivan Ivan the Terrible brought his army. He brought a hundred and fifty thousand men. Okay against a population of only 33,000. So, I mean, <laughs> it's just overkill essentially. And uh and and basically what they would do, they they would sit on the Volga and they would just steal slaves um and and sell them to, on the market uh for Persia and and Turkey. So they were just that that was kind of their thing. That was what the Kazan did. So uh the the Muslim population got expelled, right? The Russian colonists moved in, all the mosques were replaced with Russian Orthodox churches, um, and all the the Tartars of the area were were forced to Christianity. Okay? So then what happens is a couple years later they they just let the Khanate go. Okay, which is Ivan annexed it, right? He took it back. And and what goes on is that the whole control of that area is now under the Romanovs. And but it's not anything they can really hold because there's constant battles with the locals. And that's what you're gonna see throughout this, because essentially the like I said before, the House of Romanovs, when they took over 1613 to 1917 if you look at that time frame that's essentially when it's almost as if they were sent in to destroy these people right to subjugate these people now 
my my question is is in, in all my readings i don't see anything that has these people as extraordinary right that i that would get me to think right away wow these people you know there's something more to them you know they they are giants i, I haven't gotten that deep into it in the books that i've read now i've read uh, i'm probably on eight eight books uh you know, ranging from the 1500s up to today on different aspects of Russia and this this whole area and, and the conflict. And basically, like I said, I'm giving you a brief history of, of Russia. And then what I'm going to show you is the destruction of Tartary and the intentional elimination of it from the history books. So, uh, yeah, obviously the first... How did the Romanovs get into power? Well, that's how they, they married in, much like anyone else does. They married in through Ivan the Terrible, through Anastasia Romanov. Okay, and again, she is of German descent. So again, we're seeing Germans end up being in these royal houses across Europe. It, it's, it's unbelievable the way they worked it in. Almost like they had it planned. Uh, so, you know, as we get through this, eventually what you're going to see is the Russians basically just banished the hordes, okay? All the Cossacks, all the Tartars, and, uh, it's just a simple, okay, they never existed. And that's what they wanted you to think. And why? Well, that's what we're going to get into here. Okay, because initially um, you have, let's get, go, we're going to jump ahead now to the early 1700s. Okay, and this is where uh, Peter the Great takes over. And he, during his fights, he's basically battling, you know, Swedes, he's battling the Poles, he's battling the Finns, he's fighting up on the Baltics a lot. And so what he does, he finally, he finally wins his battle. And in 1703, he decides that he's going to move the Russian capital um, to St. Petersburg, which was under Swedish control up until then. And so what does he do? Well, he, he needs people to build. Okay, so he goes and gets 40,000 serfs. He ordered 40,000 yearly serfs. Now, who are the serfs? The serfs are the people who are indentured servants to the land, to the owners. And basically, these are the Cossacks, the Tartars, the, the normal lower class people. But the construction, think about this. You're in Sweden. It is it had such a high mortality rate that it re required a constant supply of workers, right? So he kept ordering over and over. And and it was unbelievable from nine out of the, they say there's there were 16 households. I could only find 13 of the Cossack uh, tribes. So as we get into that, okay, let's, this is a good spot. But, oh, oh let me finish that, that story, because it's it's so interesting that he, has to build this city okay and he he wants to build this unbelievable stone stone city 
and he does, you know, according to what he claims he did. And he, what he, how did he do this? He restricted all construction of stone buildings in Russia outside of St. Petersburg so that all the stonemasons would come help build his city. Okay. And he, like, he's just, it's unbelievable the way, the way they did it. But he, you know, he just, another example of exploiting the people. And this is why we start to see these people revolt. Because they are being oppressed, they are being abused, they are being enslaved. Okay, so if we think about Russia, up until the 17th century, um, Russia and the Ottoman Empire were, you know, essentially right next to each other. Some of their, their lands blended together, okay? But something happened between the two, all right? And it was basically religion, right? In in, in Russia, um, before the Romanovs, the Muslims weren't persecuted. And then as soon as the Romanovs come in, the Muslim persecution. Now, mo- a lot of what I'm finding is the Tartars are basically Muslims, okay? A lot of them. Although they accepted you could be a Christian Tartar, they did not discriminate. But the Russians themselves did. And that's where the split happened, okay? And, and, um, but in Turkey, the, you know, the Russian Orthodox, they weren't persecuted. But then as soon as, um, you know, the Romanovs got into power, what happened? They went to war with Turkey, with the Ottomans. And it was basically, they would fight periodically over the 300-year reign of the of the Romanovs. So that's, that's a little background of it. Now we talk about the Cossacks, okay? And the Cossacks, I feel like it's kind of an inter, intertwinable name with Tartars. Um, but there's 13 or tribes that i can find okay and that it's an interesting number also 13 tribes 12 tribes with the 13th tribe that we think about uh on something else and when you're thinking 12 tribes of israel but this is the uh 13 tribes of the cossacks now i referenced before there could be up to 16 um i've seen in some texts but they didn't identify who the 16 were so we have the Don Cossacks. Now this is right on the border of Ukraine. Okay, uh, the Kubans. Again, they're just south of the Ukraine. The Tereks. They're just uh, just south of them. Also, they are on the. I believe that's the Black Sea. There, um, you have the Astrakhan. Okay, and they are right on the Black Sea. You have the Ural who are right uh, on the western edge of Kazakhstan. You have the Orenburg, uh, which is just north. Those are just south of, the, of Moscow. Okay, you have the Samurai Shenite, and they are uh, down in, what is that, northern Kyrgyzstan, southern Kazakhstan. Okay, then you have the Siberian, which are just on the west northwestern edge of of uh, Kazakhstan. You have the Transbalkal. Okay, they're just they're in essentially where Mongolia would be, along with the um, Irkutsk. 
They're also in that Mongolian, along with the Yakutsk, which are way out on the east. Uh, yes, and then you have uh, around the Korean peninsula almost, you have the Amur and the Usuri. Okay, now what's interesting, you see even here the Ural, number five. They used to be known as the Yaik Cossacks, but as we go through this, their name was changed because they teamed up with a gentleman by the name of Pugachev. Okay, and Pugachev is a boogeyman in Russian history. Him, much like the, the Tartar history, a lot of what we know about him has been erased intentionally at the order of Catherine the Great. Okay, the Romanovs in the 1700s were constantly at battle with the Cossacks. Okay, there were all these, they called them either uprisings, rebellions, and, and, and basically, uh, what were the Cossack uprisings? Okay, it was just, it was like a, like I said, a series of conflicts between the Cossacks and the states that claimed dominion over territories the Cossacks lived in. It was basically, they fought the Russians, they fought the Poles, uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, and the Russian Empire during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Um, th they didn't like the independent-minded Cossacks, right? Uh, they, these people didn't want to be subjugated, and empires don't like that. So as the, the rules started changing, the laws started changing, and you'll see them change over time. It ebbs and flows, and one of the rumored reasons why Peter was eventually assassinated was because he was trying to give some rights back to the people and, and reduce the idea of serfdom in the country. But that's a whole nother podcast in itself. But the Cossacks, okay, this is all that area I was just talking about. It's all, it goes from basically, you know, Poland, Bulgaria, uh, Ukraine, down in along Turkey, okay, it goes all the way across Kazakhstan through the steppes, you know, into northern, uh, western China, up through the you know eastern Russia through Siberia. Some have even claimed, like Anatoly Fomenko, that it even crosses across the Bering Strait into northern Canada, western United States. And that's a very interesting take that we will take a look at in a little bit because I don't know what to believe there, but I also think there is a possibility, okay? And the timing of it is very interesting and we will get into that. So now let's look at some of these uprisings, okay? You have the Bolivian Rebellion, which was 1707 to 1708. It was also known as the Astrakhan Revolt. Um, all of these are eventually quelled, right, by the empire as they did. They would eventually narrow, name them down, wear them down, beat them down. Okay, 1934, you had the Heidemach uprising again in uh, or 17, 1734. 1750, again, a Heidemach uh, uprising. And then you had the Kolvashina uh, rebellion in 1768 and 1769. 
And then comes the Pugachev Rebellion in 1774-1775. Now think about those dates, guys. 1774-1775. What is going on in the United States at that time? Right? When does the United States declare independence? 1776, after Pugachev's Rebellion. Is there a connection between the United States and Tartaria, you know, the land of Great Tartary and the Pugachev Rebellion? Did the United States need the Tartar Empire to be brought to its knees so that they could finish off what was in the West? That's something that has been thrown out there and we will we'll, we'll take a look at that. Now, what's interesting about the, you know, the, the Pugachev Rebellion uh, is that he basically, you know, came in out of nowhere and claimed to be Peter III. Okay, now the interesting thing about Peter III is, is that, um, now let's, let's take, take a step back because I jumped ahead a little bit. Who is leading at the time of Pugachev's Rebellion? It's Catherine the Great. Now, Catherine the Great took over in 1762 because her husband, Peter III, was assassinated. Okay? And it was very convenient that he was assassinated because he was, you know, working not to end serfdom, but he was he was lowering it to the point where it was in the future that, you know, these peasants could possibly have land and freedom. Okay, and that they they the military service that was mandatory could be lifted from them, you know, maybe reduce some of the taxes, things like that. Well, the people loved it, obviously. The empire, not so much. So much like they do, he is mysteriously assassinated and his German wife, Catherine the Great, takes over. Okay, now Catherine is a very interesting woman in the sense that she, you know, is was all about enlightenment, right? The last thing she wanted to deal with were these peasant uprisings. Um, she, you know, was big, in, like I said, into the enlightenment and she wanted serfdom, right? She wanted the autocracy. She wanted the the way that thing she thought it that's the way things should be um but at the same time she wanted to grow the empire she was all about spreading russia whether it was militarily whether it was socially she wanted to spread russian culture and the empire grew uh very significantly under her reign. I believe it's something to the effect of 600,000 miles that she gained uh, during her term as uh, as ruler. And she was there from 1762 to 1796. Um, now, like I said, so 1762, again, she's coming across these these minor, minor uprisings that are put out very easily. But there's this you know, so, but what the problem is, is that they, they had changed, right? They had gone from the peasants being tied to the land. Now they were tied to an owner, 
Okay, and this is essentially slavery. So that would make them essentially then become property of the czar and they didn't want to be property. So there was a lot of pushbacks um, against these private lords. Again, you know, they, they felt that like they were just agents of the church and that they needed to be handled, that it needed, these people needed to, to either be, you know, subjugated and, and, and be bound to the land or free. You can't linger in between. Okay. So what they did is they just started imposing harsher rules under Catherine's reign, you know, on the peasants. It just became to, to the point where she, you know, she just became almost the peasant's empress because there was no way under her she was going to let them go, which is kind of contradictory to her idea of enlightenment. Um, but the, so the peasants really felt abandoned in this state and they were, you know, they were they were living pretty meager lives, you know, desperate, some would say. And they wanted to change the situation and they were looking for anything they could. Okay. And then what happens? Well, on top of that, in the 18th century, Russia has, you know, some natural disasters. There's crop failures. There's plagues. There's uh, economic and social instability, right? All stuff that is perfect for what? For a revolt, for an uprising. And then what comes in 1771 was the epidemic in Moscow, okay? Uh, that just scared the shit out of the people. And it really showed the fear and the panic in the population. So Catherine has to deal with Pugachev. So we look at the we we look at this guy and who is he? Well, he claims to be her dead husband who never really died. And and that's the the story you get is that he was he served in the Russian military uh defected was then subsequently arrested and escaped numerous times recaptured and then he got out again finally in uh, the 1770s and this is when he's going around to these Cossack hordes and basically uh, wants to start war with wants to overthrow you know he claims that he is the leader of Russia he is the he is the rightful emperor well what's interesting is between the Pugachev rebellion okay if we think about that, and the Russian conquest of Central Asia a hundred years later, okay, in the in the mid nineteenth century, eighteen sixty four, eighteen sixty five, that time frame, where they basically, you know, um, Russia took over, you know, Turkestan, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan all of the those places 
and uh, basically across the steppe, right? That's all the nomads. That's all the Tartars. That's all the, the Cossacks. And, you know, a lot of those people spoke Turk, spoke different languages, okay? And that's why Russia wanted to get them all under the umbrella, get them to assimilate. And this is where the strife comes about, right? But in the end... And according to the historical records, Russia wins. Um, and so we look at Pugachev's rebellion. Now, what we're going to look at Pugachev's rebellion in a couple different lights. Okay, we're going to look at it um, from the mainstream narrative. Right? What was it? And I'll give you a couple different examples uh, of some books I read on it and then we're going to take a look at what does Fomenko think and how does because we have what we claim to be the narrative right and that's going to be the the first couple stories that I give you or first couple reiterations of the story and then we're going to come back with what does Pugachev have to or what does Fomenko have to say about this Pugachev rebellion and the war against him and what it meant not only in Russia, but it meant for the United States. And that's a twist we don't see. And we don't see the connection. And I didn't see in any of the books that I read any connection or any mention whatsoever of the Bering Strait of, of, of North America or anything like that. So, again, I go back to what... Uh, what Mr. Uh, Alan Wood said is that, you know, a lot of this stuff could be deliberate propaganda. So when we're looking at these historical accounts, we have to always remember that they've been edited over centuries. And even, okay, so so we get into the Pugachev story and one of the interesting very interesting things about that is there was a russian uh, a famous russian named alexander pushkin who wanted to write the history of pugachev and even as he went in and, and you know he got all the best access you could get because his father was a very influential man in his time in 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 the russian you know oligarchy and eventually was, uh, yeah, his, I believe his father was killed. And then, so the story even on him is interesting because some say he wanted to write this as a, a to get back at the Russians, but others, regard, irregardless. What, what happened is, is when he was doing his research, he just kept finding Stonewall after Stonewall, dead end after dead end. And there just wasn't information there. It had just been vanished. And he's looking at it in the 1830s okay so we're talking less than 50 years after it happened that's how quickly they they snapped their finger and made it disappear okay so let's look at what what is pugachev's rebellion or it was called the peasants war in russia from 1773 1775 it was also known as the cossack rebellion it was it wasn't one battle it was a series of battles um, uh, or rebellions of independent tribes or groups that would go against the Russian Empire. 
Um, and they they specifically, their goal was to take back the empire. As I said, Pugachev claimed to be Peter III, who was the rightful heir to the throne. And that was his thing. But the thing he knew how to do, since he was one of them, he knew how to talk to the common people. He knew how to tell them what they wanted to hear. He was a politician when it came to that sense. He wasn't the sharpest knife in the, in, 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 in the toolbox, though. This guy made a lot of mistakes, but he also did a lot of great things. And that's why, in the end, he was not successful, right? He, he, he well, I can't say he wasn't successful. He wasn't successful in his plan. Okay, so we look at it. And like I said before, he was this guy who had fought with in the against the Ottomans and, you know, had been arrested multiple times. Now, what's interesting, if we look at the uh, population or, or the land, right, of Asia, now we look at Tartar, it shows up Tartary, Chinese Tartary, 600 and I believe it's 32,000 square miles. Independent Tartary, 778,200 square miles. Muscovite Tartary is 3,050,000 square miles. Okay? That, that is a massive area. Massive. All under... Tartary. So again, it was there. And and that's what we're going to see. Catherine was going to get rid of these, any mention of this. So what did Pugachev do? He went to the Cossacks. And, and what did the Cossacks, Cossacks had these people that were called the old believers. They believe in the old ways, the old ritualists of the, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Christians. And they are very hard-nosed Russian Orthodox. And, and he went to them and he was trying to get them to band together against the Empire. You know, it's kind of like a Star Wars-esque story. He's getting this ragtag group together to go against the Empire. And it's funny because... It's one of those where he's pretty successful and it's it's like a, a bee sting, right? The bee stings you, it hurts, gets your attention. And then all of a sudden the bee stings, another bee stings you. Well, now it's really got, well, that's what Pugachev did. He kept stinging. He kept poking the bear, metaphorically speaking. And, uh, you know, eventually he really got her attention in July of 1774 when he at the Battle of Kazan because you know he he never was able to take over any significant territories you know cities I should say any any major cities what he would do is he would get he would take all and and they would raid in and get all the surrounding outposts win there and then linger on the outside and then once the Russians were able to uh, rally and, and regather, well, then Pugachev and his people would usually tend to lose and they would 
escape before being completely annihilated. And what would he do? Well, what he would do is, after he lost, that wasn't the end of his plan. He would move on to the next tribe and say, okay, guys, we, we, we were very close here. I think with your support, we can go out and, and we can take on the empire. And he kept doing it and doing it. And eventually he met his match. Okay. And, and he got Catherine's attention in like early 1774. She put, she put some of her top generals on it. And by January of 1775, Pugachev was executed. Okay. So now the interesting thing is this gentleman Pugachev, he again he was able to go in and he was able to gather we're not talking small tens of thousands of people he was able to gather up to fight so he was putting up a significant fight but they just didn't have the equipment necessary right the organization necessary to to really do damage now if they could have unified as a whole now they could have really scared if not put a serious threat to the empire but again it was wasn't optimally organized it was a rebellion right it was in small pockets he could never really get people together now for and Catherine never gave it really any recognition she always played it off as oh you know poo poo pugachev he's not he's a boogeyman He's not really a threat. We'll stomp on him, you know. And and she never really, until he got right on the doorstep of Moscow and she's like, okay, now we got, you know, we got to, he got to the Volga and now we got to do something. Puts her top generals on it. Pugachev tries one more time and unfortunately his, his forces are ransacked. He tries to flee, um, but he's captured. What's interesting here is for a gentleman that is so insignificant and someone that she considered a flea, he was brought to the Grand Palace in Moscow for trial. And they don't just bring anyone to here for trial. So it's, you know, he, he can be credited, you know, there there were... I think he was credited with about a dozen or so um, revolts in, in that time frame, and there were about fifty, you know, just in the in the 1760s alone during Catherine's reign. So this was something she was pretty much used to, and for the most part, she could take care of it. But again, what was different here was that in a lot of times he got the Cossacks to turn on the empire. Again, not enough, and it wasn't organized enough to, to make a real, real effort. But what did she do? Okay. He was, yeah, okay. So in the Kremlin, in the throne room was where his trial was before 20 judges, which is the great hall of the people under Joseph Stalin. So think about how significant that is. And that's where they brought him. His death sentence, you know, everybody knew it was a foregone conclusion. He was going to be put to death. And he was, okay, in January 10th, 1775. Now, what they did is, you know, 
he uh, they they smeared him completely with dung from head to toe. He was black, um, and then the executioner comes up and he you know cuts off his head, then his hands, then his feet, and then they just you know spread his remains throughout as an example. So if this guy's just an ordinary rebel, why the need for the throne room trial and why the need for such a brutal death? And then that wasn't enough. What did Catherine order? Catherine ordered Pugachev's entire family to be arrested, detained. They would all die in prison. He ordered uh, the, she ordered the Yayak River to be renamed to the Ural River, the Yayak Cossacks to be renamed to the Ural Cossacks because they supported Pugachev. They ordered Pugachev's hometown to be renamed. They erased any mention of Pugachev, any existence of him was to be erased. And that's, you know, that is where, because that he was a serious threat to the empire, to the czars. But unfortunately, he wasn't organized enough. And what the fear was is that if anybody, any of these rebel rousers, you know, read this, read the story of this guy and, and came together, the Russian empire would be in deep shit. And so they erased it. And that was from 1774 up through the communists. I, you know, they were instructed to erase any mention of Pugachev. And I think that ties into Tartary because Tartary, you know, Cossacks, some say Chechens, right? Turks. And, and we will get into that. I'm going to do the next episode. What I'm going to do is um, I found an old book. I believe it's from 1780. Uh, one's from 1780, 1780, 1720, something in there. But I will read you a couple chapters in there because one of them is called Tartar Nations. And the book goes through every uh, different town of Tartars. Uh, and, and I'll share that book and the link with you uh, that you can find it out on the uh, Wayback Machine. But I have that and then I have another uh, a section from a different book that's basically going to, I'm going to give you, a, tie it in with today and with Crimea and the Crimean Tartars and how they were eliminated as well. Okay, so basically what we just went over was the mainstream narrative to Pugachev. Okay, so now I want to give you, there's another book called Russia, uh, the people and empire, people and empire. Um, And I I want to just go through his take on it again to give you an idea of where the mainstream is. And then we're going to finish up with Fomenko. Okay, so they get into the, you know, the Pugachev Rebellion was the last and most serious in a series of uprisings, right, that broke out in, in southeastern Russia um, in the in the land of the old believers, 
which again, if you're going to, if you think there is something more to Tartary, that's where you're going to go. You're going to go in that old believers route. It has something to do with that Orthodox uh, beliefs or the Muslim beliefs before they were taken over by the Orthodox. And that's where I think it is. I think it's more on the Muslim side uh, than it may be the Russian Orthodox, but time will tell. Um, yeah, and it, it basically, the Cossacks defend the Tsar fortresses and the stockades against these, you know, tribes from the steppes. So what's happening at the time? Okay, the nobles, like I said, the nobles are being awarded new estates along and below the Volga, which is just southeast of Moscow. And the peasants were uh, that had already lived there now became serfs. Right? And this is where the rift begins. Um, and there was new serfs being imported. Uh, they were survivors during the frontier wars of the 16th and 17th century. And most of them were old believers as well. Uh, the, yeah, they didn't want to lose their independence. They did not want to fall into the empire um, they didn't want to be taxpayers. They they just didn't want to be peasants. So the Yayat Cossacks began the rebellion. Okay. And they were a people who just wanted to live off the land. They wanted to be left alone. They lived off the river. The Yayat River was big in there. They hunt, they fished, they did a lot. And then uh, in 1748, they declared that they were going to de develop the, or the government declared they were going to develop the Yayak army to try and quell any, because there was rumblings, right, of, of uprisings. And there had been uprisings. And one of the ways the government thought they could subdue this was to start these armies under the government arm. And, and the people would be obliged to serve. Okay, and not only serve. Now, what this is where the the people start really having a problem is that not only are they forced to serve, but they're forced to shave their beards. They're forced to act Russian, and this is where the cultural cleansing. They start seeing it and they object. Okay, and this is where Pugachev comes in. Um, so yeah, so you have. Like I said before, Puchev defected from the army. Several times he was captured, but he always found a way to escape. He believed he was Peter, Emperor Peter III, and he preached the old ways. Now, uh, like I said before, Peter had gotten the hopes of the peasants up, only to be assassinated, and then everything he did was erased and retracted. Now, one thing you have to understand, though, and, and this book makes a good point, there was dozens, or a dozen or so, I should say, of these, quote-unquote, Pugachev-type figures, right? These, these rebels that would try and, and gather people together to revolt because there, there was many rebellions. But no, one was ex no rebellion was as successful as uh, Pugachev's rebellion. And he, yeah, he wrote a manifesto to the Yaya Cossacks, the Tartars, the Kalmyk tribesmen. Okay, uh, he but he spoke to their Muscovite tradition, uh, the service to the state, and all the freedoms and the privileges that they were due. 
And he used the old belief. That was his thing, was was trying to connect with the old believers. Now, the problem with that was the old believers were not going to be the people that were going to fight with him in the battles. But what they could do is they had the social influence to rally said people that were needed. Um, yeah, and like I said before, the Cossacks and the Bashkirs, they were forced into Russian service, shave their beards, shave their heads, um, and all this just degrading stuff that went against their culture. And that was the purpose, right? Is to desensitize these people to their roots. And again, these are the Cossacks, the Tartars. This is who these people are. Now, Pugachev failed in, in the spring of 74 to capture Orenburg like he did most cities. Um, in the summer, he lost Kazan. And then uh, he had some success in the lower Volga. But his lightning campaign, it was basically to avoid any conflict with the Russian army. It was just, it was just Blitzkrieg, right? They would come in, they would hit, and they would get out. And, and as soon as they knew the army was coming, they tried to avoid and, and flee as quickly as possible and go to another town. Um, now, the interesting thing, you think, oh, well, who is this guy? This guy, you know, uh, the people must have you know, not wanted anything to do with him. On the contrary, when Pugachev approached towns, the local clergy, you know, would come out, um, the, the, the important people in the town would come out and greet him with, and of course they'd have the bells ringing, they'd have bread, they'd have all sorts of stuff for him, roll out the red carpet basically. Now there were two reasons for this. Pugachev killed several thousand nobles and their families, you know, politicians, uh, tax officials, clergymen, all of them. And he would confiscate their property, their anything they owned, everything. Um, because they were part of the government or, you know, tied to the government. Their loyalty was with the government. So they would act, you know, do everything they could to keep their heads. And a uh, little bribery goes a long way. So if you look at Pugachev, what did he really do? He really only captured two cities briefly, Kazan and Saratov. He held each of them for a couple days. So it wasn't like this was, but it got the attention and it showed that if they could really put something together, they could be a threat. Um, and that's basically what, you know, Pugachev revealed. He revealed how paper thin the loyalty was of some of the non-Russians, right? And and especially the Russian peasants to the family that ruled them, right? The empire, the regime that ruled over them and, and, and the land. So they had to tread lightly after this um, or carry a big stick. And for the most part, the Russians carried the big stick and they weren't going to... Uh, put up with anything they were just going to come in iron fist and take care of business now this is where we're going to have some fun with this because we're going to get into in atoli fomenko and in his uh one of his books usa has issues with the maps of the 18th century he goes in to the uh war against pugachev 
And he talks about it. And first of all, he talks about the name Pugachev. And he even doubts maybe Pugachev was even a real person. Or like we said before, maybe it was multiple people. But he says uh, it's an alias and not a real name because it translates to tear, uh, terror or scare um, or Pugach. Okay, yeah, it, it, it translates to Pugach or Pugalo, which is scare or scarecrow. So almost like it, you know, it's it's one of those names like they used to, like the CIA used to use, where it has kind of a double meaning. Uh, the war against Pugachev. It was the last war against the Rus ward horde, or the Mongolian horde, the Great Horde. Um, then Muscovite Tartary was divided between the Romanovs and the United States, the uh, with Russia claiming Siberia. And the United States claiming half of the North American continent. And that's where it's very interesting. So what Anatoly Fomenko says, and I talked about this before, there were three Tartaries, basically. There was Chinese Tartary, which was Mongolian area and some of the steppes, um, steppe area. And then uh, where the Balkans were, where along the rest of the steppe, uh, along the Turkish border, was independent Tartary. And then up near Moscow, up through Siberia, across the Bering Strait, into northern or western Canada, down into western United States, was what they called Muscovite Tartary, according to Fomenko. Now, you will see Muscovite Tartary on all the maps where it goes across Siberia and then the map cuts off at the Bering Strait. So it doesn't show whether it goes across or not. But what we get into, what we'll talk about later is interesting, is that when you look at the North America at that time, it said parts unknown, a lot of the maps. Or uncharted territory, things like that, which doesn't really make any sense. So it's, uh, what, what Fomenko goes on to say is that the files containing the materials of uh, Yemelin Pugachev case had still been considered classified information in 1833, according to Alexander Pushkin, like we talked about before. So they, everything on this guy was classified. So then we're going to go to the 1771 Encyclopedia Britannica, which describes the Russian Empire as basically it's it's a conglomerate of several countries. Okay, so it had Russia with its capital in St. Petersburg, which had, you know, about 1.1 million square miles. You had Muscovite Tartary with a capital in Tobolsk, and it had 3.3 million 50,000 square miles. Okay, it's the largest country in the world, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. All other countries are three times smaller, at least, than Muscovite Tartary. Um, then you look at independent Tartary, with its uh, capital in Samarkand, or Chinese Tartary, in Chinman. Their respective areas are 778,000 Four, uh, square miles for independent Tartary and 644,000 square miles for Chinese Tartary. 
Now that's interesting in itself right there. Think about that. Okay, so they're saying that Muscovite Tartary is has 3 million square miles. Now most of that they're saying is up in Siberia where it's uninhabitable and unmappable on any they, good luck finding anything about that area, about east northeastern Russia. There's just nothing on it. So, let's see. It says, however, after the collapse of the Rusward Empire, the Romanovs started to distort and rewrite the history of Russia. He says, one of the objectives had been to remove these names from the geography of Western Europe and relocate them to some distant province in the east. Siberia had still constituted an independent state with a capital in Tobolsk at the end of the 18th century. According to the maps of the 18th century, though, Muscovite Tartary had remained beyond the reach of the Europeans for the most part. And that's what he's saying. Um, that if you look at the maps, that the reason he, he says why it's parts unknown for Western Canada and Western United States, like west of the Rockies, basically, Something went wrong. Was, try again. was because the... Um, Sorry, Siri just went off. Was because it was Tartars that were living there. And whether they were giants or whatever, they did not let the Europeans in. Very interesting take. I don't have any evidence to back it up. I love the idea of it. It adds more to the to to the fire, right? It's a little more fuel to this uh America American history. And that there's more to American history than we've been told. And that these two may be linked. And that's kind of what uh, what Fomenko is saying is that the U.S. is directly tied in with Russia. It's connected both by land through the Bering Strait and historically through the people. Um, so he's saying that, you know, independent Tartary was basically like the 14th to the 16th centuries. Um, yeah, and, and it was conquered by the Romanovs in the 19th century. Um, and and when did this happen? This happened during the 18th, the conquest of Central Asia that we talked about before, where he went across Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, all of it. And conquered and then erased it from all the textbooks all the maps um he said the conquest had been very violent and the name independent tartary disappeared from the maps forever naturally it goes under the alias central asia samarkand the capital of independent tartary was taken by the the romanovs in 1868 you know, and that was the war right there. That was the, the conquest of Central Asia, 1864 to 1868, is where he, that's the final blow, right? Catherine was, took care of Pugachev and the Muscovite Tartars and a lot of the, uh, this was the wipeout of the independent Tartars. And it's, it's interesting because there's so little information. But when you start looking at Fomenko, again, who is this guy? And I should have probably explained it a little better before I get in. Anatoly Fomenko. Okay, he is a Russian mathematician 
who is using math, supposedly, to uh, make some connections, timeline connections, and, and, and go check out his work because he, he's done a little bit of everything. And he's a, a alternate alternative historian coming from a math. His stuff is all math-based. Um, but what you find with Fomenko, though, is it is very, very heavily pro-Russian. Okay, and and so you have to take much like everything with a grain of salt. And a lot of his stuff seems like fairy tale, some of it. But remember, what we've been told is a dumbed down narrative of history. For the most part, could what he's writing be true? It's possible. Can I prove it? No. But I, I like to think about it at least. All right, so. Here he goes. He goes, one might arrive at the following conclusion. The western part of North American continent before the war with Pugachev in 1773 to 1775 had belonged to the Muscovite Tartary, whose capital had been in Tobolsk, okay, which is over there. Europeans weren't allowed to enter here. And that's why he says this is why you, you start to see it in the maps of this time. Okay, he says where you find huge blank spots and the fantasy island of California with only its southern part known. The very name California might have initially meant Lord Land of the Caliph. Let us remind the reader, according to our reconstruction, Batu Khan, the great conqueror, also known as Ivan Kalita, Caliph, had been the first Caliph of Russia and the Horde. He is one of the founders of the Great Horde, right? And he is the grandson of Genghis Khan. So, he goes, Our hypothesis about the war between the Romanovs and Pugachev being uh, something radically different than the suppression of a peasant revolt. That he says, the, the Romanovs just basically try and dumb it down as that. But he says, but Fomenko says, it's a, a full-scale war with the neighboring state com- compromised or comprised of Siberia and the American Northwest, which had ended with the annexation of Siberia by the Romanovs and is confirmed perfectly well um, numismatic history of Russia. He says, Pugachev issued royal edicts as he entered and conquered cities. Whenever Pugachev entered a city, he would be met by the clergy and merchant guild as well as the simple townsfolk. Um, now, what Alexander Pushkin says about Pugachev, remember Pushkin wrote the history of Pugachev. He says the regular townsfolk supported Pugachev, likewise the clergy, all the way up through the Archimandrites and the archbishops, okay? So they all, because like we said before, if they didn't, they were probably going to be killed. Uh, it is most likely the real name of the Tsar or Khan of Tobolsk remains unknown to us today. The name Pugachev must be an invention of the Romanov historians. Alternative, alternatively, they may have chosen a simple Cossack with his eloquent name it is plainly visible that Pugachev translates to Pugach or Pugalo to scare, scarecrow, etc. Pushkin reports that the Yaya Cossacks who had fought for Pugachev 
used to claim that a certain Pugachev had indeed been a member of their party. However, he had nothing in common with Tsar Peter III, their liege and leader. So he says, everything becomes clear. The Romanovs could not exile anyone to Siberia before the end of the 18th century because they had not owned the land. Siberia had been a part of the Muscovite Tartary, the last remnant of the Horde, and a Russian state that had been hostile towards the Romanovs. The latter had to defeat Pugachev in order to obtain access to Siberia and the Pacific coast in the Far East. So that's what he's saying right here. He's saying that this, no, 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 these, these, this is that Tartar horde. This is part of the Rus word golden horde, the golden Mongolian horde. This is the last remnants of it. And this is what's blocking the Romanovs from connecting with North America and with the Pacific coast of Asia. The Roman Romanovs only began the process of distributing the names of the former Russian provinces um, across new maps of Russia, right? So they, you know, once part a great Mongolian empire. Okay, so furthermore, the Ru- the Romanovs started to change the coat of arms of the Russian cities and provinces after the defeat of Pugachev, and not any earlier. So why would they do it after him? They're going to start rewriting history. They're rewriting everything. They're changing the the names of the cities, the provinces. And they were they were re-dividing up, drawing new lines of the territory that was called Muscovite Tartary. They must have added them to bordering provinces, which had grown up normally as a result. These gigantic provinces were later divided into smaller ones without much haste. The Edict of 1775 abolished the 20 existing provinces of Russia and introduced 40 new ones. Okay, right there. What did they do? Erased 20 provinces, turned it into 40. Well, now you have a problem with knowing your history. It has been jumbled right there. And this is what they do over and over. The Romanovs aren't the only one. This has been done by the narrators of history throughout time. They change borders. They fight wars. They change lines. They change names of people. They enslave people. They redistribute people. Repopulate areas. All so you don't know your history. And that's what, that's what Fomenko is saying here. They did with, the Tartari, with, with Tartary. He says, when the Romanovs obtained access to Siberia, they got the opportunity of correcting the old geographical maps they inherited from the 14th through 16th centuries of the Horde, right? Because they came in 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 the 1600s, which is at the end of the Mongolian Empire. We suddenly realize, he says, that the foundation of the United States of America strangely, strangely coincides with the end of the war against Pugachev in Russia. He was defeated in 1775. This arranges everything in a different perspective. The war for independence in North America had been the war against the last American remnants of the Russian horde, which had been attacked by the Romanovs from the West and the American, quote-unquote, freedom fighters in the East. 
Nowadays, we are being told that the Americans had struggled for independence from their British colonial governors. In reality, it had been a war for the vast lands of Muscovite Tartary left without a governor. The American troops hurried to the west and the northwest, so not as to be late for their share of the land. It is common knowledge that George Washington became the first president of the USA in 1788-1789. It turns out that Washington became the very first ruler of the American territory that had formerly belonged to the Russian horde. It is understandable that the very fact that there had been a war against the Mongolian horde in America had been erased from the American history textbooks. Likewise, the very existence of the tremendous Muscovite Tartary. The war between the United States and the remnants of the Horde for the entirety of American continent had continued until the second half of the 19th century. Now that's quite a claim right there. Alaska had remained in Russian possession for a particularly long period of time. So it was purchased, quote-unquote, from the Romanovs in 1867 for a token price. Yeah, we got a steal on Alaska. Um, that was that was a hell of a deal. So, Fomenko goes on to say, the last warlord of the Horde had been called the Terror by the Romanov administration in the middle of the 18th century. He must have truly terrified the dynasty of the Romanovs by his attempt to rejoin the former western lands of the Horde with its eastern parts, the immense Muscovite Tartary. Having crushed Muscovite Tartary in the violent war against Pugachev, the Romanovs went out of their way in order to make this war seem as nothing but a large uprising by the peasants. You know, led by a certain Pugach, a scarecrow, right? A terror, an anonymous Cossack from the Don. That's that region we were talking about, the area of the Don, the Don Cossacks. The fact that Pugachev soldiers had referred to one of their military encampments as to Moscow is in good correspondence with our reconstruction, according to which historical personality known as Pugach or Pugachev had been the military commander-in-chief of the enormous nation whose lands had spanned Siberia and North America northwest known as Muscovite Tartar. We are beginning to realize that the army of Pugach or Pugachev had strived to restore the former borders of the Horde and return its capital to Moscow. So, yeah, it's what you're seeing here from from Fomenko is a little different story. Cuz what he's telling us is that this Pugachev narrative was much bigger, much more significant than we're led to believe because this was not only taking place in Russia, but this was fighting the Muscovite Tartary claim in the United States or North America, United States and Canada, which until I read Fomenko, I've never heard that. Now I've heard, and it makes sense though. If you think about it, think about the giants, right? Where were the giants? They were along the Mississippi and out West. So that would make sense if, you know, we mentioned it before that there had been rumors that, some of the the Tartars were giants with red hair, 
and this might be a connection. Is it for sure? No, I'm just spitballing here, throwing stuff out there for you to think about, to go research, right? Think about all of the mounds across America. So many we haven't even discovered yet, or they've been covered up, intentionally destroyed, bulldozed. But that would tie in with this, possibly. And that would also tie in to the fact that America, the history that we've been told of America, is total BS. And that the history of this country is much older than we've been led to believe. And that th- that this is the new world. This may be the new version of this world. You know, this this land. But this is not the new world. So then we look into, we're going to look at Pushkin real quick. So when Pushkin came to the Ural in, in 1833, which is about, you know, almost 60 years after the war, uh, the Pugachev War, he said all the historical evidence he could be fine had blatantly been blatantly misleading and planted by the laborious Romanov administration over many decades that had passed since the end of the war. He said, nowadays it is hard to estimate the percentage of truth of whatever they told him, as opposed to the legends planted by the Romanov administration. It appears as though the local Cossacks had still remembered some real historical facts, vague as they were. They told Pushkin about the the gilded domes of Pugachev. This legend might be a distant memory of the gilded domes over the Palace of Khan or the Tsar of Muscovite Tartary possibly in Tobolsk, uh, which was their former capital, right? Uh, the gilded quarters of the Tsar, or the Khan of the Horde, were declared a simple wooden peasant house covered in sheets of polished brass by the Romanovs, right? And this is what we're running into nowadays, okay? People are pointing out this amazing old architecture, and what are we told by the narrative? Oh, they were just temporary structures. Oh, they just built these. You know, slaves built these. These weren't built by skilled laborers. We don't have blueprints of these buildings. They were just put together. Oh, they didn't build that. That that wasn't like that. It was just a, a, a little. So they're saying here that, you know, this these gilded domes that were talked about were nothing more than simple wood huts. That had a little bit of uh, polished brass on the top. Now, when we're thinking about these, think about those, you know, the typical Russian architecture, the Muslimy Russian architecture with the rounded domes on top with the points, you know, very um, heavily Muslim influence. And that's what we're talking about here. These are the gilded domes. And says, uh, it goes on to say, Pushkin's keen interest in the biography of Pugach or Pugachev may have been an altogether different nature. According to the Romanov version of history, Pugachev, the imposter, had been presenting himself as Tsar Peter III. Um, Pushkin had a unique opportunity to learn the truth about the gigantic Muscovite Tartary, the state that had spanned Siberia and half of North America and was obliterated from human memory at the order of the Romanovs, after the defeat of Pugachev's army, a wave of mass repressions rolled over the territories annexed by the Romanovs. Their scale had been so formidable 
that the surviving locals and their offspring hasten to learn the correct version well enough to make it the only one. So you're starting to see that they just, they're rewriting history. They're deleting this entire people from the books, this entire realm. Um, so it says, uh, yeah, when, when Pushkin arrived to these parts, when he got to the factory, right? The, the factory where, um, Pugachev had a lot, uh, you know, they, they were very loyal to him in the Ural region, the Yayak region before they were renamed the Ural. And, um, so Pushkin went there 60 years later. And the local Cossacks were still afraid to mention Pukachev for the fear of mentioning something, quote unquote, improper. Okay, so there, he said there's no authentic documents left by Pukachev or anyone from his camp. Um, now, they did find the seal of Pukachev um, and you can find Pukachev's edict. Those are out there. But that's about it for any authentic um artifacts you know the government forbade the very mention of his name and that's why the people were so scared because if you even mention him you you would die they'll take you right to the gallows or send you off to a camp uh his his hometown village was renamed like i said the river yayak became known as the earl the yayak cossacks became known as the earl cossacks um, because they were the driving force in, in, in the rebellion with Pugachev. Um, and, you know, the, and he goes on, the Volga Cossacks were disbanded. Um, likewise, the uh, Zaporizhzhi army. Um, the Empress gave orders to forget every fact of the peasant uprising and refrain from so much as mentioning it. Um Yeah, but it's so what you're seeing, guys, is as we start looking at this over and over, you're just seeing deliberate manipulation of history. Um, and he's even saying that it wasn't until 1775 that it was the first time that the Romanov troops even entered the South Ural uh, and Siberia. So he's saying that these the the Cossack hordes would not let the Russian army even pass that point, and eventually, once the Russians got out there, they just torched it, burnt, and moved on. Uh, and it said the survive you know the surviving warriors and residents had to flee, abandoned citadels were forgotten and only discovered by archaeologists at the end of the twentieth century. Uh, such is the nature of our crime. Uh, and and similar old citadels of the 15th to 18th centuries. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm looking at, guys. So based on what we've seen, right? Based on the narrative that we've been told, what I'm finding is that it doesn't appear that these people were 
the people were labeling as the great ones, you know, the old civilization that can be attributed with all the ancient architecture, with the free energy technology, the Antiquitech, or any of that stuff. So I don't know. I uh, What I'm seeing is, is these were people, right? This was a land. Yeah, they... Now, I have to dig into the Mongolians a little more. I want to look into the Huns a little more, which is, you know, Huns, you're talking 4th century, whereas the Mongols are the 13th century. And that's one of the things you have to remember. People confuse that, and they think the Mongols and the Huns were one and the same. Now, could they be from the same bloodline? Possibly. I don't know. But at the same time, they're not the same people. Okay, and and they and we're going to get into some of the older. That's what I want to do next. I want to I want to take a look at some of the older texts. And now the only problem is, though, again, the texts that I was able to find were post Pugachev's rebellion, which means this is after the Romanovs had been rewriting the history of this. So we will take a look. I'm I'm really interested to hear what you guys think about this um, because I, in what I'm finding, aside from Fomenko, I'm not finding any evidence of these Tartarian people of a great civilization. I'm leaning more towards Emmanuel Kingman's uh, theory of that this being Tartarus and more of a hellish place um on earth uh, an abyss of suffering and that the group that we're labeling as tartaria or the tartarians is a predecessor to these folks it came before this um because i i'm just not seeing the connection right now between the great civilization that everyone talks about you know the the more atlantean lemurian type um, free technology, free energy, Antiquitech, uh, any of that stuff. I mean, yeah, Tartaria, we can find flags in old books. We can find it in old maps. And we can find drawings of it where there do show what appear to be giants. But we don't know much more than that right now. And that's why I think everybody, you know, this is something we need to dig into collectively. Why the need to erase peoples from history? It doesn't make any sense. Why do you need to hide it? If it's that much of a lesson for people to learn, put it out there. Let people learn it. It's not like you're handing them a playbook to overthrow the government because he failed. And he failed pretty miserably considering the fact that his head and his body parts were strewn about Moscow and and the the Kazakh steppe lands. So I don't know, folks. This is one of many. We're going to keep addressing this this idea of Tartaria, of uh, Old World. But I just wanted to kind of take a stab at what I show you what I've been researching as far as, you know, kind of what the narrative says. And then 
what Fomenko says, because Fomenko is going to be counter-narrative for the most part. The narrative is going to be, you know, heavily Russian empire. Fomenko tends to lean heavily on like the Tartarian in this one uh, empire. and But he is pro-Russian as well. Don't get me wrong. His books tend to be put Russians in a very good light overall. So with that said, I'm very interesting, interested to hear what you guys think uh, about the whole Tartaria stuff. Do me a favor, uh, leave a review, leave some stars, click like, whatever you want to do, whatever you can do. Please share it with your friends. Um, reach out to me, DM uh, on Instagram at the Great Deception Podcast. Uh, email is the Great Deception Podcast at gmail.com if you want to reach out to me there. Uh, but guys, I just, uh, I don't know. I came into this, you know, hoping to find some better information on, uh, and have a better answer at the end of this, but I'm at a point now where I don't think this is the great civilization that everyone is, is having it out to be, but much like they said in a lot of these, uh, these books, especially my buddy Alan Wood here from uh, the Romanov Empire book, there's a lot of deliberate propaganda out there. So what do you have to do? We have to just keep looking. Just because you don't find what you're looking for right away or find, um, uh, and even if you don't find what you're looking for, sometimes you got to accept that it is what it is or it's not what you thought it was. And I'm more than willing to do that because I am not tied to anything when it comes to this stuff right i'm not one of those tartards that everything is tartaria yay yay no you know everything we can't explain must be tartarian no i think tartarian is a bullshit name i think it's old world i think there's this old world technology and you know the new world that we're in the industrial age is a totally different world totally different way of life um than what they had back then. But that's up for discussion. So with that said, we are going to sign off. And I want you guys, as always, to stay strong and question everything. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone 
more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together.